You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 11th of December 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, well, Simon Brook, the journalist and communications consultant, will be here with me to go through the newspapers. And, of course, we all know what one of the top stories in the papers is today. It's the woeful performance of the British government. Far too much partying going on. Although, was it ever thus? Because, of course, Winston Churchill, like to drink or two, will be finding out all about his favourite cocktails. And... Keeping on the same theme, here's our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. How the hell did we end up with Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister? Blair and Brown, just like many before them, on both left and right of politics, were statesmen. Johnson is someone who wings it. And Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, rounds up what we learned this week. We learned this week of the options still available to a struggling singer who has eked sadly meagre success from Mambo's 1 through 4 and Mambo's 6 onwards. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Russia has demanded that NATO rescind a 2008 commitment to Ukraine and Georgia that they would one day become members and said that the alliance should promise not to deploy weapons in countries bordering Russia that could threaten its security. Washington has already ruled this out. Meanwhile, the European Union and the UK warned Russia that it would face consequences if it invaded Ukraine. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has moved a step closer to facing criminal charges in the United States for one of the biggest ever leaks of classified information after Washington won an appeal over his extradition in an English court. Further hurdles remain before Assange could be sent to the United States. The legal wrangling will go to the Supreme Court, the United Kingdom's final court of appeal. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing mounting pressure after his Conservatives lost their poll lead over Labour and it was revealed that his communications chief attended a festive gathering in Downing Street during a lockdown last year. Johnson, who won a landslide victory in a 2019 election, has faced a barrage of criticism since a video emerged showing his staff laughing and joking about a Downing Street party during a 2020 Christmas lockdown when such festivities were banned. I'm Georgina Godwin, and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's pick up on some of those stories we were talking about in the headlines. I'm pleased to say that joining me today is Simon Brook, who's a journalist and communications consultant, uh, and tellingly was a, a comms chief, in fact, for the Conservative Party. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Georgina. Yes, many years ago. Yeah. We'll 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 get back to that. I think first of all, though, let's actually have a look at Ukraine, yeah. and um, I mean, some pretty hard language coming out of Washington, coming out of the EU. Now the UK, Liz Truss, has also said there will be consequences if Russia does attack. Uh, but Russia, of course, pushing back. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, there are various reports in the media today and the newspapers pointing out that this could be the most serious um, confrontation in Europe since the Second World War. And um, yes, it's sort of been hotting up, certainly. I think part of the problem, of course, is that NATO is, is the sort of 
the, the, the nut, nut of this argument, isn't it, this confrontation? Because the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has made NATO membership of his country a key element of his platform. And so he's dis- determined not to uh, detract, uh, to row back from that at all. Um, but I think what's interesting as well is the question of, is 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 this a, a, this threat of invasion as we would see it? But as far as Putin is concerned, just sort of uh, reconnecting the two countries, if you like, is it a sort of classic uh, tactic of his to detract from the problems at home, falling poll ratings, concerns about the way the pandemic's been handled, things like that, or is it a more sort of genuine, heartfelt uh, belief? Um, you'll remember that Putin has penned, or probably his advisors have done it for him, uh, a long essay, sort of fifteen thousand words or something arguing passionately that Ukraine is historically, culturally part of Russia. So he seems to believe that. And I suppose it also fits into his general narrative, doesn't it? His personal credo, so we understand that that Russia's been diminished since the fall of the Soviet Union and therefore uh, reintegrating, if you like, as he would see it, Ukraine into that that new Russia. Uh, Is that sort of not just a you, you know, throwing a pop at the at the West and also trying to detract from his problems at home. But does he genuinely see it as Russia's uh, destiny? I mean, I think that's that's very much the narrative, isn't it? Mm. But I also think that it it it, it does him very little favours to to actually have a war. Why would he want boots on the ground there at this time? I think a lot of analysts are saying that although that does seem to be the way that this is heading, that that actually practically it it possibly wouldn't happen. Uh, and then the other sort of important point, I think, is the fact that so many Ukrainians in that part of the country, on that flank there, uh, have been given Russian passports. And that it might be how he justifies it if he does indeed decide to, to go ahead with that. He's protecting his own citizens. Well, that would be a way, exactly. That, and that's what he's he's used, the sort of tactic he's used so far, hasn't he? This idea of yeah, just protecting the Russians against the bullying Ukrainian government or whatever. So that would give him a, an opportunity. It, you know, it has worked him before in sort of, uh, you know, in Georgia, uh, in um, in Chechnya, other countries. He's done this before. But I think the problem here is there's a limit to how many times you can try that tactic, isn't there? Throwing forward, outward, a, uh, you know, a, a, a foreign uh, escapade like that, if you like. There's a limit to how many times you can do it. And also, of course, this would be bigger than ever, wouldn't it? I think the other question, I suppose, is is how much uh, stock the West puts by this. Um, you know, uh, there's very, very much a sort of uh, message coming from the Biden's White House that the US is back, um, that, you know, after the years of uh, the aberration, as they would see it, of the, the Trump years, when nobody knew what messages were going to come out of, uh, of the White House, when the president of the US was quite happy to insult uh, previous allies and, and things, that we're going to get a more consistent and a firm approach here to international relations. I think the only the other point is, I suppose, is that um, that Biden has made it clear that that China is the the foreign threat, if you like, that he's most focused on. And also, of course, I imagine people in Russia, other countries around the world who are not really the the US's friends, will be looking at what happened in Afghanistan and saying, look, you know, last time the you know, they the, the the US got involved in a major foreign policy policy initiative, it went horribly wrong. It was just a sort of a, a cock up, if you like 
like. So the question, I suppose, is it's not just about rhetoric, but practically, could the Biden White House manage this better than it did uh, the situation in Afghanistan? Mm. Now, the EU and now the, the UK have, have weighed in on this. Yeah, absolutely. So both uh, being very vocal and very strong on this as well. I, I suppose it's encouraging, really, that, um, that, that there, there is this sort of coalition of the willing, if you like, in the West, that we've seen these three uh, major powers saying, talking in this way. Um, and, and also, I think what's interesting here is there have been sort of questions over the last few years about um, the the connection, the, the strength of, of the union, if you like, between the EU and NATO. Um, you know, um, obviously, we had the comment by Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, a few months ago, well, I think it was probably quite a while ago, but talking about uh, whether NATO is brain dead. Uh, and so there has seemed to be a, some sort of conflict between uh, NATO, if you like, and the EU, um, whereas it perhaps one of the things Putin is doing with this huffing and puffing, these threats, is actually to push these uh, these Western allies together. Well, let's hope they can uh, maintain that unity. Absolutely. Look, let's hear what uh, Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, has to say about the, the stories of the day. Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution is a five-part documentary about two swaggering, confident, perhaps flawed, giants of politics. I've devoured the series in just a couple of nights this week. Both men give extensive interviews, as do most of the key players from that time. Across the arc of their shared story, you go from Blair taking over the leadership of the Labour Party through to Gordon Brown's electoral defeat and his departure from 10 Downing Street. Whatever you think of the unravelling of their friendship, their politics or their involvement in the Iraq war, Watching footage of Blair and Brown in the early days and listening to their colleagues recollecting the intellectual tussles leaves you thinking, how the hell did we end up with Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister? If Parliament were a reality TV show, then the whole lot of us, I'm afraid, would have been voted out of the jungle by now. It's unfathomable to think that you could make a similar programme about Johnson. Blair and Brown just like many before them, on both left and right of politics, were statesmen. Johnson is someone who wings it. Living through tumultuous political weeks can be darkly entertaining, draining and depressing, often all these emotions hitting you in quick succession. And that's the roller coaster ride that we've had this week in the UK, as a story about a Christmas party held in 10 Downing Street during the depths of lockdown last year was allowed to spin out of control simply because nobody could be found to give an honest answer about what took place. The Prime Minister is still unwilling to acknowledge that anything illegal was hosted, seemingly clinging on to some hard-to-decipher notion of what actually constitutes a party. The best, the best, thing, best answer I can, I can give is that I... I uh... And then, at the peak of the ensuing Ferrari in the UK, the government decided it was the perfect moment to introduce Plan B, a new round of restrictions to cope with the spread of the Omicron variant of COVID. Now, while these controls may have been required, they've landed devoid of credibility and a strong suspicion that they are an example of what Linton Crosby, an Australian political strategist and a regular advisor to Mr Johnson, describes as a dead cat strategy, where you reveal something shocking 
to distract people from the real story. But I'm not sure that the deceased feline has helped much. Previously, when new controls have been brought in, they've had an immediate dampening impact on London. But last night as I cycled home, nothing much had changed. The bars seemed busy, people were out doing their Christmas shopping. Perhaps there were a few more masks around, although this morning the crew in my neighbourhood coffee shop were all maskless and actually making jokes about the non-party party in Downing Street. When trust and credibility drains away from a person, a company, a government, it can be hard to win back, especially when the boss doesn't seem to give a damn. This week has seen many ignoring the edicts from central government and instead deciding for themselves what feels right, what needs to be done to keep both safe, but also their businesses and lives moving forwards. Millions of individual Plan Bs are being put into action by millions of people who are now sceptical about COVID rules dished out by a government that clearly believes they only apply to the hoi polloi. I have just received a press release headlined Experts warn of the dangers of Christmas to your cat. The email goes on to explain the risk of giving kitty leftovers from your lunch table. Corn on the cob can choke your cat or letting them near baubles, lit candles or even gift bags. Apparently they might get their heads stuck in the handles. The experts also stress that you must not force your cat into cute Christmas outfits if they are not open to wearing them. Open to wearing them? What's the point of a cat if it refuses to dress as Santa? Honestly, it sounds like Mariah Carey has fewer riders for attending your Christmas lunch than the average Moggy. I do feel, however, that the PRs could have pointed out what to do should the worst happen and your cat succumb to corn on the cob choking. Simply bag up the cat and post it to 10 Downing Street. It seems that they are in need of fresh supplies. Thank you very much there to Andrew Tuck. Well, the dead cat. I mean, we've had, what a week, as he says. I mean, are you not just exhausted? It is. It's, it, this really is, in news terms, the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it's funny because I, I, I did a piece about it um, for a public relations website just saying this is a classic example of how not to handle a crisis. And one of the things you do in any difficult crisis situation, well, they're all difficult, any crisis situation, is to get the whole thing out there quickly. Just release everything. Even if it's bad news, get it all out there. The one thing you don't want is the drip, drip feed of, of bad news, do you? So we now got the sort of the question of whether Jack Doyle, the, the head of comms at, at, at number 10, was at this party handing things out. So uh, there just seems to be one story after another. So it, it's, a, it's a gift for the media, but appalling, really, for uh, the prospects of the Prime Minister. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and now, I mean, I think we do have to go back to your personal history in the, the fact that you, <laughs> oh, you, have, on, <laughs> you have been in this job. And, and and listen, I'm not defending Allegra Stratton, but the point is that her job was to basically go out there and lie for the Prime Minister, and she found it impossible to do without laughing. She happened to have been caught doing it. The real responsibility obviously lies with him. Had you been in that position, what would you have done? Had you still been in, basically, what was her job? Well, I, I mean, I think... I don't blame her for resigning at all. I think she did the. I think she's one of the very few people who've come out of this, in uh, you know, in, in, with an honourable, uh, in, in an honourable way, if you like. Because I think what she did was to say, "I'm really sorry." She it was a sincere apology. Whereas Boris Johnson's apology in the House of Commons at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday was a typical politician's weasel words. He was. I think he was sort of apologising 
to her because she'd had to resign. I mean, I wasn't even sure what he was apologising for. But but the point is, hers was unreserved, open and honest. Um, and, and I think I think a lot of people would feel sorry for her, as you say, because her job was to try and spin this the best way she could. And we, we actually saw in that video that was released, didn't it? She just slumps across the desk laughing in despair, saying, what can I say about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's so awful is, I have to say, a lot of people in my trade have been through that so many times before when you're trying to defend something that a person or an organisation has done and you're role-playing it with colleagues and you just think, what on earth do we say here? Yeah. And yeah. you very often record it so you can play back and think, right, did that phrase work or was that a good argument? was that a good line to take and what's just so awful here is of course that nobody checked that this thing had been deleted so I think she's a an innocent pawn to some extent in, yeah. in this really nasty story I mean I think one other point that 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 has come up is just how incestuous and circular that relationship between the press and 10 Downing Street is. So Allegra Stratton, uh, um, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, Allegra Stratton is married to James Forsyth, who is the political editor of The Spectator. Uh, Rishi Sunak was best man at their wedding. Um, you know, they're, they're, and, and so many people that worked in Downing Street have also worked in the press or vice versa. I mean, it, it just, there are many, many connections there. And and I think one thing that's going to come out now that we know that the head of comms was definitely at that party is, were there members of the press there too? Because if they were, those people too are going to have to resign. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really good question. As you say, this is the problem as well, where you get, there are certain journalists, and I'm not going to point fingers, but there are certain journalists, and there always have been, I think, who are sort of partly journalists, but also partly friends of the Prime Minister, whoever that might be, and, you know, almost party apparatchiks, if you want. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm always impressed, always impressed, both now as a as a, a journalist and a communications person, and also when I was in the press office uh, at Tory central office, that you would get uh, journalists who were very friendly, who were very engaging, were very nice, but still distanced. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas we, I have to say, I mean, we had, uh, uh, I remember at, uh, at election nights at Tory central office, we would have journalists, certain journalists in the press office with us. And I would just think, well, OK, but I'm not, are you a journalist or are you a sort of party supporter? Yeah, yeah. So I think having that distinction is really important. And I think it also shows, on the other hand, that there are no friends in politics, really, because, I mean, this is the dangerous thing. You have people who are, as you say, married to each other, attending weddings and stuff like that. But then an event happens next week and, you know, suddenly that friendship is blown apart. Absolutely. There's one thing that I wanted to pick up on, which is the police saying that they are not going to investigate it because this happened retrospectively. They, they don't. Inv- so how do you investigate a crime before it happens <laughs> and the other thing is that Downing Street has police officers on the door and nobody goes in or out without being seen by the police but also there is some record of them I'm sure there's CCTV but there's also you would there would be some kind of method of signing in or whatever I mean obviously there's a record so we know that the place was guarded by police we know that they know exactly who went in and we also know they know exactly what went on so how is <laughs> Is it that they feel they cannot investigate this when other people having parties on that same day were fined, as we've seen in the press? It's not only that, of course, but there's actually normally a live feed from Downing Street. Most of the broadcasters will keep a camera 
almost all times of the day and night on Downing Street just to see who's coming and going and 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 you know whatever events might happen there. I mean, when there was a there was a missile attack on Downing Street a f- quite a few years ago now, uh, there was a camera h- that took the shot of the Downing Street door vibrating with the explosion uh, uh, that took place. But yeah, you're right. And I think the other point is, and this is why I always think in a, in a crisis situation, you will you will get through it if you pass the reasonableness test. Do you know what I mean? all kinds of people and organisations, bad things happen to them. And if if what you seem to have done in the situation, what you seem to be saying seems reasonable to most people, then you will get through it because people will say, well, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Hey-ho, these things happen. But as you say, this does not pass the reasonableness, reasonableness test in so many ways. And I think the Prime Minister's idea of trying to kick it into the long grass by saying, let's have an investigation, mate, just pop your head around the door and ask your colleagues, were you at this party? Yeah. You must have known, you know. And I think that is, as you say, is what's so ludicrous about it. And I think this plays into another thing which is really dangerous for Boris Johnson, I think has really sort of slashed his poll ratings, as, as you say. And that is because this is just isn't fair. Do you know what I mean? And, and and there's all kinds of political stories about who knew what when and the intricacies and political nerds like me love it. But your average voter in North Shropshire, just as to give an example, just couldn't give a monkeys. But when it comes to fairness, I always say that is when you really get this cut through. And so we saw with the example of Dominic Cummings, the, the prime minister's advisor in Barnard Castle, taking a trip that everybody else was banned from doing. That was the last time the Tories really saw a hit in their poll ratings. And I think this... The, the, I mean, who cares who, who went to this party in a way? But the fact that it's not fair and voters can see that, I think that is why it's so damaging. And the real test comes next week because there's a by-election. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say North Shropshire is the by-election. Uh, this is caused again by what many people would see unfair, the resignation of Owen Patterson, who was the uh, part the, 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 the MP who was accused of... Um, well, I'm found guilty, in fact, of uh, of uh, lobbying in a way that he shouldn't have been doing. Boris Johnson, who was considered, seen as a mate of his, then, of course, tried to, to protect him by wrapping up a whole uh, change to the whole lobbying procedure, which MPs were marched in to vote for. And then less than 24 hours later, they were told, actually, forget it, we're not going to do that after all. So a lot of MPs feeling embarrassed about that, which is bad for... Um, for Boris Johnson, as, as you say, the real test uh, will come. The Telegraph, for instance, has a real, has an interesting discussion or, or, report on this test. Just for instance, uh, the the Tory candidate uh, Neil Shastryhurst visiting a, uh, a, a a voter knocking on the door, um, and she says to him, "This year, I can't vote for that charlatan that you've got in charge. Next round, he'll have gone, won't he?" So that is such a strong message. And, uh, and and the Telegraph also points out, for instance, just the by-election from Eastbourne in 1990, which was years ago. I was the press officer on that by-election. It was for us just a little damage limitation exercise. We had a majority of 16,000. Surely nothing was going to go wrong. Well, actually, it was a massive swing to the Lib Dems of 20%. And a few months later, of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher fell. So by-elections do matter, especially when you see a really safe seat like this, possibly, um, you know, going the wrong way. Absolutely. It is so fascinating. And honestly, when you look back over this week, there's so much stuff that you just couldn't even make (laughs) up. Couldn't make it up, exactly. (laughs) So let's cross to Andrew Muller to assess the week's weird and wonderful news stories. We learned this week of the options still available to a struggling singer who has eked 
sadly meagre success from Mambo's 1 through 4 and Mambo's 6 onwards. We learned that Lou Bega was one of the choices of the Polish Ministry of Defence as it booked a concert held at an airbase near Warsaw and broadcast on national television to both thank and honour soldiers who have recently been, as the official billing had it, defending the eastern border. Which, we learned, is how Polish officialdom prefers to present the wretched task of unleashing fire hoses at the terrified and freezing migrants currently being used by Belarus's ghastly president as a stick with which to poke Europe. We learned, however, or at least found it difficult to arrive at any other conclusion, that roughly the first million or so artists, like even Vanilla Ice, to whom the Polish MOD pitched the gig, found themselves otherwise occupied last weekend. How else to explain not just the presence of Lou Bega, whose lone hit occurred before a great many of the Polish soldiers staring into their phones in the audience were even born? But Jenny Berggren, out of remorseless Swedish dullards, ace of bass... Dreadful, if aptly named Trio No Mercy, best remembered for taking the premise of Peter Sarstedt's Where Do You Go To My Lovely and making it even more annoying. And for reasons genuinely surpassing understanding, Last Ketchup. We learned that Lust Ketchup did not, as it turned out, take the stage. We were as disappointed as you were, as they had been quarantined on arrival. It would be preferable, if optimistic, to think on musical grounds. So we learned overall that we do need to consider the possibility that the government of Poland has lost its damn mind entirely, that Polish soldiers cannot rap, or at least this one can't, Poland's army may secrete in its ranks the equal of Chuck D or Kendrick Lamar, who knows. And you've learned, having listened to maybe four minutes on the bizarre dystopian spectacle of a gaudy concert by an assortment of mid-90s also-ran pop stars performing a benefit show for the soldiers of an emergent nationalist theocracy responding to a migrant crisis created by a deranged 21st century Soviet Union theme park, that you've no longer any need to sit through 29 hours or whatever of the next Adam Curtis documentary series, Happy as ever to help. Anyway, we also learned something of the softer side of Australian racing drivers, as last weekend's running of Australia's premier annual motorsport event, the Bathurst 1000, was interrupted. Oh, we've got a safety car. Scrambles. There's a safety car. Oh, and what an Australian reason for a safety car. There's an echidna on the edge of the racetrack. 
Indeed, we also learn something of the awesome unflappability of the echidna, the odd yet adorable Australian spiny anteater, one of which had picked this inopportune moment to saunter across the racetrack at Mount Panorama. Can't find its way out, so we need to get these cars under control and uh, just help that little critter off the racetrack. We subsequently learned of further hazards peculiar to Australian motorsport and to Mount Panorama in particular via possibly the strangest moment of motorsport commentary ever broadcast. Adam Curtis can send the finder's fee to the usual address once he's overlaid it on that new radical song or whatever. Now, I was just detailing, Mark, in my experience here, we've seen kangaroos, we've seen horses, we've seen trees, we've seen water, we've seen bits of cars scattered from one end of the place to the other. We've never seen an echidna. We have never seen an echidna. We've seen dogs, but we have not seen an echidna on this racetrack. This place is just mad, isn't it? We've seen an albino kangaroo. And you didn't believe me? No, I didn't. See? Not that hard. Regrettably, we are unable to do proper justice to the unexpectedly moving spectacle of high-octane supercars swerving suddenly at terrifying speeds to avoid hitting an echidna. We would prefer to think not just because the drivers feared for their tyres. The echidna was fine, incidentally. And... We learned that last December, during what was supposed to be locked down, a Christmas party either did or did not take place in 10 Downing Street, but if it did, it was all fine, even though if in fact it had happened, someone who hadn't even gone to it, if it did, had to be sacked once we learned of it. Let's have a brief stab of circus music. What we really learned here, to our scarcely expressible incredulity, is that there dwell among us people who did not embrace, as one of the few consolations of lockdown, the perfect excuse not to attend the office Christmas party. Weirdos. Where's that gong? For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you very much to Andrew. Well, as he points out, at this time of the year, many of us overindulge, as we've been hearing from the stories coming out of 10 Downing Street. But actually, it's nothing new. Previous residents of that address also like to drink, or six. Well, if you like a glass of something quite strong, mixed with a dash of history, maybe with an added splash of delicious humour, then welcome to a book of cocktail recipes inspired by the colourful and often controversial life of the man voted the greatest Britain. I'm talking here, of course, of Winston Churchill. Well, joining me on the line is Kieran Whitworth from the Imperial War Museum. He contributed to much of the historical content of a new book all about cocktails inspired by Winston Churchill. Kieran, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us about the, the, the premise of this book. Describe the book to us. Yeah, so it's, um, it's first and foremost a cocktail book. I think I think um, you'd be um, mistaken if you thought you'd learn a lot about um, 
the, 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 the vast detail of Churchill's life that you would from a biography. But so it's it's primarily a, a cocktail, but first and foremost. Um, but we uh, we had much fun putting it together. It's uh, it's it was inspired by um, as as you said, Churchill's life. We had an existing relationship with the uh, Churchill Hyatt Regency Churchill Hyatt's hotel uh, in London, uh, and they had a bar, the Churchill Bar, which is there and, and can be visited. And they, they they were already producing a few cocktails, sort of based on his life. So uh, myself and my colleagues at the Imperial War Museum thought it'd be great to put that into, into a book and to pick some of the best ones uh, and, and then uh, also do some fantastic photography at both the Churchill Bar and the Churchill War Rooms, which is one of the Imperial War Museum's sites. Um, and, and the result is the cocktail book and uh, we're, we're very pleased with it. So how do you enjoy a cocktail like Churchill? Because he famously drank from, you know, morning to night. He did, yes. And the irony, as I wrote in the introduction, is he, he wasn't really a big fan of sort of mixed cocktails. There, there is an anecdote that uh, he, uh, when he visited the White House and was re- receiving mixed um, martinis from uh, President Roosevelt, he, he actually tipped them away down into the, the, the White House uh, plants. So, uh, um, but so, yeah, he, uh, I, I, I like them. I, I, I do like them. And I think the way the book's laid out is very much sort of starts from the, the, the beginner's side of cocktails right the way through to the more um, complex ones as well. So I've picked out a few, a few of, of the highlights from the books sort of based on that really oh yes well tell us so i think the most unique one um in the book uh, is in the beginning of the section is the churchill warroom martini um it's a gin-based cocktail um and the the churchill bar from the hotel actually um went down to the church warrooms and and they created bitters based on the moisture that was on the walls in the church warrooms down in the underground bunker under the treasury so um that's in the book, and I think it's quite unique. Um, obviously, I wouldn't recommend going there and sort of trying to extract your own moisture <laughs> from the walls or licking the walls as you visit the church war rooms, although it is well worth a visit. Um, but uh, you can use any other bitters sort of as a substitute. But I, I found that a, a fantastic one to start with, really, because um, it really taps into sort of the, the history side of these cocktails as well. Absolutely. And that's where you come in. That was your contribution to the book, was writing about the historical side. Yeah, I had the fun part of sort of linking all the different cocktail recipes to his life. I just finished writing a, another book for the Imperial War Museums, uh, a quiz book about Churchill. So I had a lot of Churchill knowledge in my head at that point. So yeah, that was I was asked to sort of contribute and sort of link them. So um, and this, the, the the next one I picked was 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 one I, is probably one I'd like to try myself. Um, and it's the Clementine, and it's very much based on his wife Clementine, um, who was obviously the sort of the the, the woman behind the the great man himself, and probably write for her own film soon at some point. I would hope. Um, so that's a, that's a lovely cocktail, and that's that's sort of a cognac, a cognac one mixed with Paul Roger, which was Churchill's favourite champagne brand. Um, he had lots of brands he liked, and there is other brands out there, but that was one of his favourite ones. And that that sounds like a nice mix with a, with a hint of orange peel just on the side, the Clementine side. Absolutely. You know, having written so much about Churchill, I wonder if you're seeing parallels between him and our current leader. Uh, well, he's uh, uh, currently has obviously famously written a book about Churchill, which is uh, a, a very good biography. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, Churchill himself uh, he did he did enjoy those those finer things of life, and that's some of the things we do talk about. Um, but he he was very much um, I, I talk about in the introduction. He very much liked to keep things under control. He he liked he liked the fact that the, the public liked to think that the leaders could could handle their drink, and he was obviously famous for for, for enjoying his drinks. Um, and uh, yeah, he. He, uh, he, um, 
he, he, he never really did anything to dispel that myth, myth really, even right the way through to when he was the Prime Minister during the war as well. And there's a, there's a, a cocktail in there called the Iron Curtain, uh, which is great and is based on this speech just after the war. Uh, but um, there was the, the, the famous party at Yalta in, in 1945, at his 70th, when he was drinking with both President Roosevelt and Stalin. And I think that would have been an interesting one to be at, a party to be at. Absolutely. Uh, finally, where can listeners find this book? Because it's a great gift idea for the season. Yeah, it's, it's widely available throughout all bookshops. It's on the Imperial Museum's own shop themselves uh, and on any other retailer, book retailer. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And yeah, we've, we're really pleased with how it's been going. It's, it seems to be um, sort of, you know, um, a lot of people are enjoying both the history side of it and, and obviously enjoying trying some of the cocktail recipes themselves. And if the cocktail recipes are too hard, they can always pop into the Hyatt Churchill bar can't they exactly yeah and try them have them mixed for you and by the, the, the mixologists there themselves and go to the imperial war museums to perhaps as you say extract their own bitters from the war <laughs> that's right yeah we're open throughout <laughs> christmas period as well so please do visit kieran whitworth from the imperial war museum thank you very much indeed now of course right outside the imperial war museum and at whitehall we have uh, these wonderful christmas lights we have all sorts of uh, christmas trees and decorations and so on but one rather disappointing one has been in Trafalgar Square. Uh, tell us about that. Well, this was the. This is a traditional uh, uh, gift, traditionally a gift from the Norwegian people to London as sort of thanks for the Second World War. I have to say, I've been wondering how much longer they can do this for. I mean, thank you, but how many trees can you do? But unfortunately, this year, the story is that uh, the tree that arrived was, was a little sparse, as some people have described it. In other words, the Christmas tree that uh, uh, Oslo sent to London was, was really not up to the mark. So I think rather ungratefully, various people people in London have complained about it. And then rather embarrassingly, of course, there was this vote of the city council in Oslo, should they send a replacement tree, a little bit more bushy perhaps or something. And not surprisingly, I suppose they said, no, you can you can deal with that tree, it's yours or whatever. So I think it's... Uh, and, th- and then I was looking, there's another story as well in The Guardian uh, today about uh, what's described as the worst Christmas tree in the north. And this is uh, simply because um, the tree is too tall apparently to be properly decorated so local people just took some tinsel and just kind of did the bottom bit really like the bottom third and they'll forget it well you know what you get the you get the gist or whatever because they weren't allowed to climb the tree uh, and there's a wonderful quote here and i have to say we really should have an andrew muller groan for this so the local a local conservative councillor george robinson says of this the fact they're not allowed to climb the tree it's elf and safety gone mad oh, sorry but <laughs> okay i think we should leave it there have you decorated your own tree no but now I realise I don't really have to just get an old twig or something and chuck some tinsel at it apparently that's the look of this year apparently (laughs) Thank you very much to Simon Brook and that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday Thanks also to our studio engineer Neil Rahal and our producer Marcus Hiffie I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week Thanks for listening Thanks for listening